0: From the garden level of Harvard Medical School's historic Vanderbilt Hall in Boston, this is Think Research, a podcast that discusses the stories behind medical research. I'm Abby, your host. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. Stroke is the fifth leading cause of death in the United States and a leading cause of adult disability. The vast majority of strokes, around 87%, are ischemic strokes, in which blood flow to the brain is blocked. Time is of the essence in treating stroke, and decisions must be made quickly to assess the patient and plan a course of action. The minute-to-minute decision-making and complexity of stroke treatment is what drew Dr. Taylor Kimberly to the MGH Brigham Neurology Residency, after completing an MD-PhD at Harvard. Dr. Kimberly currently treats stroke patients at Massachusetts General Hospital. He is the Associate Director of the MGH Neuroscience Intensive Care Unit and is Associate Chief in the Division of Neurocritical Care and Emergency Neurology. On today's episode, Dr. Kimberly describes the work he is doing to characterize and prevent the types of secondary injuries that many stroke survivors suffer in the days after the initial injury. One of these injuries, brain edema or brain swelling, can result in death or permanent disability. Currently, there is no way to prevent edema from occurring in stroke patients. Dr. Kimberly, along with a group of researchers, is hoping to change this. A drug called gliburide, normally used as an anti-diabetic agent, could be the key to preventing edema. Dr. Kimberly and his collaborators are optimistic and are currently testing IV gliburide in a phase three clinical trial. Hello, Dr. Kimberly. Welcome to the show. Thank you for the opportunity
1: to uh, take some time today to, to talk about uh, some of my research and the, the type of work that we do in trying to help patients who have a stroke and acute brain injury. Um, I, I became interested in medicine back in college. I went to Princeton as an undergraduate and I fell in love with research. I uh, studied uh, with a mentor um, who got me interested in using experiments to answer uh, clinically relevant questions. And very early in uh, my medical career, as I was trying to figure out which direction to head, I decided that uh, at that point that the most compelling set of questions that got me interested were, were those that that crossed between the basic fundamental research and its application to clinical medicine and and part of that was the recognition that i just uh, i uh, enjoyed working with people i enjoyed uh, uh, working one on one to try to uh, help people get better but then use those opportunities to inspire the types of research questions that then I could take back to the laboratory. So uh, after, uh, after college, I uh, came here to Harvard Medical School and uh, studied in medicine and joined the MD-PhD program. Uh, at that time, I was interested in uh, the brain in a general sense, and I wanted to learn more about the types of neuroscience research projects that were going on in the uh, Longwood Medical Area and in the Quad. And I was uh, fortunate uh, to come across Dennis Selko, another of many mentors over the course of my career, uh, who was uh, formative in setting me off in the direction that I, I headed in, and really uh, provided for me guidance in not only how to approach clinically relevant research, uh, but really uh, imparted in me the uh, excitement in studying neuroscience in the brain and clinical neurology. Uh, so once I finished my MD-PhD training and graduated from, from Harvard, I then uh, joined uh, the MGH Brigham Neurology Residency. And it was during this time that I became interested clinically in stroke and neurocritical care. I was attracted to the minute-to-minute decision making, the complexity uh, from a clinical perspective of these types of patients, as well as the, the collaborative, multidisciplinary nature of, of taking care of, of these acute brain-injured patients. Uh, After finishing my neurology uh, residency, I completed a clinical fellowship in uh, stroke and neurocritical care, again at Mass General and Brigham and Women's Hospital. And then finally, after all of that, I was in a position where I could return to the original goal, uh, which was to combine uh, uh, clinically relevant experimentation or experimental design to um, to the problem of stroke and neurocritical illness. Uh, and again, during this period, I, I had a mentor, Jonathan Rosand, and a research mentor, Robert Gersten, uh, both who are in the Harvard system that were incredibly helpful to me as um, as I was moving along at this stage of my career and eventually transitioning into an independent investigator. Uh, and Uh, Now, uh, uh, my research group focuses primarily on stroke, but also uh, increasingly uh, includes other acute brain injuries, and we are interested in linking up fundamental biology uh, to disease pathogenesis and finding treatments that can uh,
0: improve
1: patients' lives.
0: Okay. So you talked about your group working on stroke and different acute brain injuries. Can you tell us what what is a stroke?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So uh, there are actually three types of stroke, uh, but the most common is called an ischemic stroke. And that's where a blood clot uh, is formed elsewhere in the bloodstream and lodges in the blood vessels, the arteries that supply blood to the brain, and that clogs or blocks up an artery, and every, uh, you know, uh, the the part of the brain that is supplied by that uh, blood vessel, everything distal to that uh, blockage, uh, dies as a result of this ischemic stroke, and that accounts for about 80 to 85% of strokes, and that's the major focus of my laboratory, but there are two other types a subarachnoid hemorrhage, which we also study, and then intracerebral hemorrhage. Both of these are bleeding types of stroke where there's leakage of blood into the brain or brain spaces that cause uh, both
0: direct and indirect injury. Can you tell us a bit more about the current research? I know you talked about working on stroke again. You just explained what a stroke is. Can you tell us about the current research your group is doing?
1: Yeah, so the, the main focus of uh, stroke and uh, primarily of stroke clinical research over the last 20 or 30 years have uh, in ischemic stroke research, I, su- I should say, has been uh, developing both uh, pharmacologic and endovascular techniques to reopen the blood vessel. So if there's a blockage, either with a medication called intravenous uh, uh, TPA, or tissue plasminogen activator, which dissolves the blood clot, or now more recently, the development of mechanical devices that are uh, threaded up through the artery and physically remove the blood clot and pull it out of the brain. So this has been the main focus of stroke uh, care, and uh, you know, fortunately for patients, these are, are very effective treatments but they're only available to a a small portion of stroke patients. My research group uh, is interested in uh, studying a secondary complication of stroke called brain edema or brain swelling. And the reason is that uh, this is uh, uh, an unmet uh, medical need where we know that there are uh, patients uh, particularly those with severe or very large hemispheric stroke, who develop brain edema a couple days after the initial event. They're frequently uh, cared for in the intensive care unit where I work clinically. And unfortunately for these patients, they uh, they deteriorate sometimes right in front of our eyes. And so they can be awake. Certainly they can have... Uh, uh, a lack of movement on one side of the body or the other, but they're awake and interactive and then, then they become less responsive and can die from the subsequent swelling. My research is, is focused on or is inspired by the idea that these very severe cases of brain edema really represent the tip of the iceberg in the way in which brain edema can affect a stroke outcome. And so our work is really sort of twofold. One is that we are trying to characterize the way in which brain edema, uh, or the extent to which brain edema causes secondary injury after stroke. And then more recently, we've begun linking up underlying biological pathways that mediate that edema formation. Uh, with the idea that these can be intervened upon and new therapies can be tested. How do you go about finding patients to do your research? I guess my group is a, a translational group. So we we study uh, animal models. Uh, we do some modeling and cell culture systems. But most of it is inspired by or, or guided by uh, initial investigations and in, uh, patients and patient samples so a big part of what we do is to approach patients who are uh, who are hospitalized with stroke and consent them for participation in research uh, and we do that through a variety of means um, uh, I, together with a colleague I uh, have run uh, uh, a uh, phase 2A and phase 2B clinical trial. And those types of enrollments extend beyond my institution or my hospital, Mass General, where where I work. And those are multi-center national uh, uh, clinical trials. And so uh, some of those uh, enrollments are are done by other investigators. And the samples are then sent uh, to my laboratory where we study them. Uh, But we also uh, approach patients, uh, within MGH and enroll them in related studies. The, the goal is to uh, collect uh, biospecimens and samples to help uh, identify uh, both biomarkers of, uh, that predict outcome and help with prognosis, but then also
0: identify these underlying biological pathways. What is important to look at when studying secondary brain injuries after stroke? So the principle,
1: uh, or the guiding principle for studying secondary brain injury is that it represents a collection of uh, injury mechanisms that occur in a time frame that is broader uh, than the initial blockage of the blood vessel. And therefore, if we can characterize and intervene upon those, prevent them from occurring, that represents a, a uh, tractable strategy in a broader time frame. Uh, these this type of strategy then could uh, extend treatment to a broader array of patients than those that currently are treated with uh, thrombolytic or thrombectomy related treatments. So um, our group is uh, is helping to characterize the types of secondary injury, and uh, there are three widely recognized types. One is infarct growth or infarct expansion. So when a patient arrives with an initial stroke injury, over time that can grow slowly, typically over the first 24 hours. And this is the uh, principle behind thrombectomy and, and thrombolytic strategies, is if you get in there fast enough, reopen the blood vessel, you can prevent that infarct growth. Uh, so that's one type. The second type is hemorrhagic transformation, and what happens is, the as the brain or the stroke region of the brain dies from the lack of oxygen and blood and uh, and nutrients, that degrades the normally intact blood-brain barrier, and then blood can leak out, and that, if it's severe enough, can lead to a a new collection of blood or hemorrhage that can cause injury from the mass effect related to it. Uh, And then the third is brain edema. And after the initial stroke injury, over a period of two to three days, the normal ionic gradients in the brain fail within the region of the stroke. And uh, water uh, uh, follows this an osmotic gradient and leads to mass effect and this displaces the normal brain tissue uh, that surrounds the stroke and can cause additional damage so as i said earlier a brain edema is the type of secondary brain injury that we focus on most and uh, what one of the things that we found is that even in moderate-sized strokes, not just these large strokes, where everyone knows brain edema causes secondary injury, but in these moderate strokes, we've found consistently across a variety of stroke cohorts and a variety of stroke patient populations that if a patient develops brain edema, uh, it is associated with worse outcome.
0: What happens to a person during a stroke?
1: Well, uh, usually, when a stroke occurs, it's really quite sudden. Uh, oftentimes, uh, it is witnessed, and, and if it is, then both the patient and uh, the people around the patient will notice a sudden change in function. Either the, uh, the arm or the leg or the movement of the face will. Become paralyzed on one side of the body or the other. Sometimes uh, there'll be a loss in the ability to speak, and there'll be a loss of vision on one side of the body or the other. And that can develop usually over a period of minutes, and uh, is quite uh, quite dramatic. And that that is is due to the fact that that. Specific regions within the brain that normally control the function of each side of the body uh, are, are no longer functioning properly because they've been damaged. And so usually these patients are brought to medical attention pretty quickly. quickly. It is obviously a medical emergency. So when, when they arrive in the emergency department on a clinical uh, side, we, we have systems in place where we very rapidly respond uh, and assist the emergency room and the emergency physicians in the evaluation and management of these patients to provide them with treatments that are time restricted. They only work within a short period of time, usually within the first few hours or so. So time
0: is really of the essence in, in stroke. Given the work you're doing in your lab and the different research, um, and the fact that you enjoy working with people and patients um, do you find it a benefit to be both a clinician and a researcher?
1: Absolutely. Uh, it's really what keeps me motivated uh, when when I take care of patients in the uh, intensive care unit, the neuroscience intensive care unit and uh, meet with the patients, talk with their families, uh, and, Tell them what to expect. Give them the treatment options. Do my best to help them get better. It uh, makes me grateful for the things that we can offer patients, but it also uh, galvanizes my commitment to um, to make uh, to allow patients to uh, to recover more than they already do. Uh, Oftentimes, uh, uh, seeing uh, the way patients recover, seeing what obstacles they encounter, inspires the type of questions that we study. And and brain edema is one of them. When I started uh, uh, about uh, seven years ago in studying brain edema, this was not an area that the field spent a lot of uh, time and energy on. But as a clinician, I saw this uh, every day in the unit, and it uh, it really, uh, as I said, it really motivated me to uh, to focus on it. it. It it gave me confidence that if we could identify new treatments, uh, it would have a major clinical impact. You know, for example, there's there was one patient who. Uh, Uh, stands out in in my mind uh, as illustrative of this kind of uh, interaction between the the clinical work i do and the research i do and it was us a relatively young man he was uh, a father of two uh, and he was on a flight from uh, europe over to back to the united states and in the middle of this transatlantic flight he suffered a stroke and unfortunately for him, they were right in the middle of the flight, and so they couldn't turn back. They had to keep going, and that was the fastest way to seek medical attention. They touched down at Logan Airport and uh, brought him immediately over to Mass General to the emergency department. I was the stroke attending at the time, and also uh, the ICU uh, neurointensivist and. I remember very well talking with, uh, with him and uh, with his wife. I remember evaluating him. He had a severe stroke, a massive stroke. And over the subsequent days that I took care of him in the ICU, uh, there was a very real possibility that he would deteriorate and die. It was very um, stressful for uh, his family. It was very tragic. Um And I, I remember as he developed the brain swelling, uh, contacting the neurosurgeon who was who was on call, and talking about doing a brain surgery to try and save his life, uh, which uh, which the neurosurgeon did. He removed the skull on one side of um, on one side of the head to allow the swelling to go outward rather than inward. Uh, saving his life, and I've continued to follow him since. And although there have been a lot of obstacles in his recovery, uh, I've been amazed at how, uh, how that process of recovery for him has gone and how much progress he's made. And it's these kinds of examples where if we have treatment strategies to prevent the edema from occurring in the first place, then I know that um, even in these severe strokes, we can make a big difference in patients' lives.
0: You just talked about um, speaking with the neurosurgeon in this particular story you're telling to um, help the patient. Can you speak more about how collaborations help you in your research and in your clinical work?
1: Yeah, collaboration is uh, incredibly important to both my clinical work and my research. Uh, On the clinical side in the Neuroscience Intensive Care Unit, uh, it is an everyday occurrence to collaborate with the interventional uh, neuroradiologists and neurosurgeons, uh, consultants, uh, the bedside nurses. And coordinating that care is critical to maximizing the speed and pace and degree of recovery of all the patients that we care for. Similarly, on the research side, uh, so much of what we do is, uh, is accelerated by, uh, uh, by collaboration. So for example, uh, I recently uh, co-led a phase two clinical trial with a colleague and we've been uh, collaborating for uh, six or seven years on a uh, clinical project evaluating a drug that prevents, or that we think prevents, brain edema. And uh, I can say with certainty that uh, the type of work or the, the uh, understanding that we have now about brain edema, and particularly the role of this investigational drug in preventing it. Uh, I, I would not have been possible without the uh, collaboration with, uh, with my colleague. Uh, and then more broadly, with the larger uh, larger group of investigators at, at all of the sites, as well as all of the folks in, uh, in the sponsoring uh, organization who's, who's funded the work. Uh, it really is, it just could not be done without uh, uh, collaboration. And it, it really, when it's done well, it really has pushed me to think about questions in, in new ways that I wouldn't, wouldn't have uh, done otherwise. So uh, absolutely, I, th- I think it's really central to the type of work that we do. One of the benefits of of straddling both the clinical and and, uh, research worlds is the ability to to translate uh, findings uh, from the bench to the bedside. And uh, one project uh, that I've uh, been involved in uh, since 2011 is the uh, clinical development of a compound that uh, is designed to prevent brain edema in the case of this project, uh, which targets the Sifaniurea Receptor 1 or SUR one uh, channel complex, the preclinical work in the fundamental biology was uh, discovered by a diff- another laboratory, a laboratory of Mark Samard, who's a neurosurgeon down at University of Maryland. And his lab had shown uh, that the uh, inhibition of this channel after stroke in multiple rodent models, inhibited the formation or prevented the formation of brain edema. He further showed the mechanism, which was uh, that using uh, any of a collection of inhibitors, that that bound to the SUR1 protein, which co-associated with the TRPM4 uh, cation channel or ion channel, and that prevented the flow, the unregulated flow of ions. Uh, in the injured brain, and as I'd mentioned earlier, uh, brain edema in part results from uh, an abnormal osmotic gradient in the injured part of the brain and water follows, and so this channel appears to, or channel complex appears to be integral to that process. Back when uh, Mark Samard and his group had made this discovery, he had found that a a uh, previously-approved FDA-approved FDA drug called gliburide was um, very active in inhibiting the activity of this channel. Now, gliburide has been around for decades. It was discovered as a uh, diabetic or anti-diabetic agent. And the reason is is that this SUR1 protein is normally expressed in the pancreas and regulates the secretion of insulin. And that's how this was discovered as a screen for compounds that regulate the SUR1 uh, 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 KERS6 uh, ion channel complex located in the pancreas. But what, what uh, Mark Smart's laboratory discovered was that the SUR1 uh, channel complex is upregulated in the brain in the setting of, of stroke. So it's not normally present, but it's upregulated. And so in this, uh, in, in that situation, uh, code or administration of glyburide uh, inhibits that channel and, and prevents edema formation. Now, uh, he's, uh, as a, a neurosurgeon, and while well, he too is a clinician scientist, uh, he, he needed a, um, a, uh, a collaborator to uh, study stroke, and he found uh, uh, or connected up with Kevin Sheth, who I, I had alluded to earlier. And then Kevin and I had a conversation where, where uh, Kevin, you know, described uh, uh, some of the preclinical work and said, hey, you want to uh, work on this project with me? Let's, let's try and translate this into uh, a, a see if this drug has activity and uh, an effect in patients and so we paired up with um with a um a pharmaceutical company and ran a pilot trial and then more recently um based on some encouraging signs in the pilot we ran a, a phase 2b a randomized uh, placebo controlled trial uh at 18 sites in the US and um uh, so far, the evidence is quite encouraging and and we're, we're excited now to be moving into a phase three study, a, a registration trial to try and, and definitively test whether this uh, drug IV glibriide can uh, can prevent brain edema and large stroke.
0: Thank you again for joining us, Dr. Kimberly. It has been a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Well, thank you for the opportunity to uh, tell you a little bit about my research. Next time on Think Research. Plastic surgeons reshape, move around, and tailor tissues to
1: restore a missing shape or a missing function. This is what 99.9% of times plastic surgeons do, and this is what this discipline is about. But uh, it's not what the discipline is known for.
0: Dr. Giorgio Jacides talks about the work he is doing to develop new ways of reconstructing tissues. Harvard Catalyst Think Research is supported by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Subscribe to Think Research on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. To find out more about our podcast or suggest topics for future episodes, visit our website, www.catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch.